Welcome to an exegetical study of biblical scripture. This scripture is God's speech, God's story, written through the hands of men by his spirit, and it's all about God's glory. My name is Bryce Ferguson. Join me now as we go into the word. This is Genesis. Let me tell you a story about something dissimilar as God is the creator of all things, that God had created the world, that God had created the stars and the planets and the oceans and the land and the mountains and the atmosphere, and the plants and the animals and all of these things and the humans, all of humanity. And he had a plan. And there was a very intentional plan, and there was a reason, and there was a purpose for all of this. And let me tell you a story about something that would transpire that would also become part of God's plan, which would be a catastrophic event onto the earth and forever change the earth and forever change so much of what God has made onto the earth. Brothers and sisters, I welcome you today to a time together in God's word and a time to learn and to seek teaching and learning from the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would bless the words that you want to have spoken today, that you would bless the reading of God's word, and that you would transform minds and hearts, including mine, to be more like Christ and in the image of Christ. I pray that our time together today in the word would be fruitful, that we would bring as a sacrifice to the throne of God all of our lives, every part of our lives, that we would hold nothing back in sacrifice to you, God, because we want to lift you up, God, because we want to praise you, God, because we want to worship you, God, because we want to obey our God, because we know you are a good God and a faithful God and a true God to your covenants, oh God. We pray this all in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, folks, two weeks ago, we left off in Genesis chapter 6. At verse 8. So today, as we pick up at Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, let's start by going back a few verses to verse 5 and recap. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Continuing verse 9. 
These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. That's what blameless in his generation means. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And let's pause here for now. What do we see already? We touched on this a little bit two weeks ago when we talked with just the increasing corruption described at the start of chapter 6. There's two ways to go. Let's say it this way. There's two ways to go. There's either God's way, as you pursue God's way, as I pursue God's way, as the earth or mankind pursues God's way, or you pursue the way of pride. You pursue the way of selfishness. You pursue what you want to pursue outside of God. No regard for God, no obedience to God's law, no seeking out what is the will of God, what is God's law, what it means to know his commandments, to obey his commandments, to know the word of God. And if you are on your own, then you are already on the way or in the way of sin. You are in the way of corruption. You are pursuing a life of sin, or you could say it this way, you are pursuing a life apart from God or opposed to God. So two, and point number one then, is the world on its own apart from God is wicked because you cannot live apart from God and be holy. You cannot live apart from God and even be quote-unquote good. You cannot live apart from God and make really anything of yourself because apart from God, it is corrupt. It is sinful. It is selfish. It is prideful. And pride was the sin, the great sin, the substantial sin, the sin that caused enormous effect in the Garden of Eden. It's pride. It's not submitting your life to God. So the world apart from God is wicked. Let's look at this again in these verses, verses 5 and 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It was constant. This was pervasive. It was massive. This was not some sin here and some sin here. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah. Why God put them to death? Because it was pervasive. It was everywhere. Verse 6, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. God is a God of emotion. God has a mind. God has a heart. God has emotions. He was sorry that he had made man on the earth. Folks, have you ever been sorry or felt sorrow for something you have done in your life? 
Well, that is not unlike God feeling sorry. But this is because mankind had pervasive wickedness apart from God. Let's go to verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And it's not that the people were gossiping or were lying or were stealing from each other, were jealous. No, it was worse than that. You know, even when a culture goes bad, what seems to be something that the culture agrees is wrong, normally, is violence. That those are the worst crimes in a society. This is what it had become on the earth. The earth was filled with violence, it says in verse 11, and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. We know that, of course, except for Noah and Noah's family, as we could derive here. Point number two. God is just, and God alone is the judge. Let's go back to verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide a man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now, folks, verse 3 is a response to verses 1 and 2 in chapter 6. What we see is this change. Some commentators think that this 120 years is declaring a span of time from this statement until the flood. Whether that's the exact correlation or if God is saying, no, I'm going to shorten men's lifetimes because of judgment against them. We don't specifically know if it's this one or if it's that one or perhaps if it's a different interpretation. But what we see is God is responding to man's wickedness. God is responding to man's corruption. Let's look at this in verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. This is not just mankind. Now this is a judgment on the earth. Man, animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens. This takes you all the way back to chapter 1, where God created each one of these. Let's look at verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And with examination... I look at it like this. Because evil is evil, evil must be punished. Evil cannot be allowed to continue without punishment or there is no justice. And God is a God of justice. God is a God of law. Because men choose to oppose God, because they live a lifestyle of opposition to God, they must be punished. And this is justice. And all believers in their hearts want justice because 
God is a God of justice because justice is right. Because there must be balance. You cannot allow evil to flourish and just flourish and flourish and get away with it. And to the one who sees and knows all things, God Almighty, there is no thought in the mind of one man that God does not know. There is not one action, there is not one word uttered by one man which God does not see and hear. And unlike the growing culture in the world today of lawlessness, and it is on the rise, God created the law, and God believes in the law. And why did Jesus come? Jesus came to fulfill the law. Our God is a God of law, of laws. And with the structure of the law, therefore, there is reward for obedience and there is punishment for disobedience. This maintains justice. And this maintains holiness. There is repercussion. There are repercussions for living in wickedness, for pursuing wickedness, for living a lifestyle of wickedness, which is opposition to God. And why? Because God is holy. And God says, be holy as I am holy. So be holy in all you do. God alone is the judge. And God is just. Point number three. Noah was called by God. He was chosen by God. We see this first in verse eight. That Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And in verse nine, that these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. See, God chose Noah, and Noah was already walking with God. There was increasing corruption on the earth and wickedness, that the thoughts and the, the actions of men were only evil continually, and at the same time, Noah was walking with God. He was not in the lifestyle and the pattern of the world and what it had become. Noah had a personal relationship with God. And why did God call Noah out? Because God chooses. I know I've said it that way multiple times, and that, that is very specific because God is a God who chooses. But if that is confusing or if that is mm, curious to some, let me say it a different way. What is love? And what does love do? That's right, love chooses. And this is what God does. He chooses men. He initiates. God has done all of the work required. God created. God sent his son to die on a cross for our sin. 
that whomsoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. God resurrected so we could be resurrected at the end of our lives and be with God forever. God did all the work. And what does man do? Because of all this, if man chooses God in response, it's because man loves God back. He loves him in response. Love chooses. You've heard it said before, love is a choice. But I would say in the noun, verb, let me use it both ways there, the love is active. Love is proactive. And what does love specifically mean? What does love do? Love chooses. God chooses us, and we choose God, and that closes the circle and binds it together of a two-way relationship or just a, i.e., relationship. Because it takes two to be in relationship, and it is only in both choosing that it is confirmed then as a relationship. God calls us to relationship with him, but we must respond in choosing him. And what does choosing God mean? It means choosing him above all else. Because that is the call from God, and that is the requirement from God. God sets the structure. God sets the standard. God sets the commandment. And we obey. And we obey in love. It's not a burden to those who follow God because they love God. It is a love relationship. But unlike any other love relationship that you've known, unlike any other love relationship that you've had in your life or that you will have in your life, your relationship with God is absolutely and utterly different and it's better. And it's more complete. And it is love that does not judge you, does not hold wrong against you, because of the intense love in this relationship. Jesus has already done all of the work for those who believe. Point number four is salvation. Back to the word, chapter 6, starting at verse 14. These are God's words to Noah. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. 
two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Folks, what do we see? We see God is intentional. And that when God has a plan like this, that God makes a way. We sing a song in church. God makes a way where there seems to be no way. That the Lord's ways are not like man's ways. Now, never before had there been a catastrophic flood onto the earth. But God was going to bring a catastrophic flood onto the earth as a judgment against mankind because of what they had chosen. They had not chosen God, and therefore there was a consequence to not choosing God. There was a punishment to not choosing God. There had to be justice, and God was going to bring it. And for the faithful, God also makes a way. And God provides. And God is God of salvation. You know, different commentaries have different projections for how long it took Noah and people believe his sons to build the massive ark. And I would absolutely think that his three sons were involved with that because this was an enormous task. But what we know is that it was sometime between Noah having three sons around the age of 500 and the start of the floodwaters at the age of 600. Now a cubit measures 18 inches. So when they say that it was a length, the length of the ark was 300 cubits. That's what, 450 feet? Its breadth was 50 cubits and its height 30 cubits. This was a very large ark and there were three levels. And it was a timber framed ark with gopher wood, which if you research that today, you'll say it was a, it's a largely disputed or unknown species of wood. And that it is possible that gopher wood existed in that area and then no longer exists. And perhaps that was because of the flood. What we know is this was a durable species. And the ark was made in such a fashion as to withstand an incredible amount of water and an incredible storm, the likes of which we have never seen on the earth before or after. And we'll get into the flood more next week, but this was over one year inside of the ark. A massive storm, a massive amount of water. I think it's likely that it was something of about 75 years or less for Noah to build the ark. If he had all three sons back to back starting at age 500, 
And you can add up the lineage here within the next couple of chapters that at least one of his sons was born Shem, right around 500. And then there would be time necessary, of course, for his sons to grow from infancy to adulthood to be strong enough to help him build this ark. So it could be somewhere around 75 years. It could be less. And what did they use to build the ark? Well, I've got a list here. No, I don't. We don't know. We know God's instructions for the gopher wood, for the dimensions, for certain aspects and portions of it, for the door in the side, for the three levels. We know God's instructions for the filling of the ark with animals and food and the people who would be on board the ark. But there is much mystery to the curious mind. And were there others who helped these four men build the ark? I would think very likely. But would it have been necessary that they would have needed faith to do so? Perhaps. But it, is it also possible it was just the four of them? Yes, that's also possible. Because even though this was the ancient world, there was still engineering. There was still wisdom and intelligence given to man. There were still aspects of strength and provision from God. Remember, it is God who called them to build the ark, who called Noah to build the ark, and they responded in faith. You're building a massive ship out of timber in the desert, essentially. Whether it was specifically the desert or if it was in a semi-arid region of the earth. This takes faith. And because Noah walked with God, he believed God. And he trusted God and he said, yes, I will build the ark because you have called me to build the ark. God chooses. And for those who believe God, when God chooses, when God calls them to something, God will provide. God will empower them to do great things as God wills them to do them. Is that always what mankind would call miraculous? No. Is it sometimes what man would call miraculous? Yes. Can we ever put God into a box or put a label on God as to presuppose that we would always know the limitations or the procedures or the methodologies of how God works and or how God will work? No, we cannot. In fact, God likes to use the foolish things of this world to shame the so-called wise in the world. So God made a way. God directed the way, God called Noah, and God made the way with Noah. And in his just punishment of putting to death those who deserve death, because they chose the way of death, because they chose opposition to God, this mankind that had become increasingly corrupt on the earth, God also intentionally saved Noah and his family and carried them through the waters of death. He put his blanket over them and said, I will protect you. Not unlike Passover. And God instructed the blood of the lamb 
to be put on the doorposts. So when the angel of death came by night, because God said the angel of death was coming, that his people in trust and in faith of him would put blood on the doorposts, and therefore the angel of death would fly over and not touch their homes because they had the blood of the lamb. This is a great foreshadowing. And the Israel people in Egypt that night were saved. And God saves Noah and his family through this ark. God is a God of salvation and provision and grace and mercy and compassion and love for his children. This global flood, this worldwide flood, or this incredibly far-reaching flood, certain commentaries would say it wasn't the entire earth, but it was over all men and all mankind and where they lived on the earth up to that certain altitude. But this death by water was also God's plan. And so too was salvation. Now let's talk about point five, God's covenant with Noah. In chapter six, verse 18, God says, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark. That is the method of salvation. You and your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you. God did not just call Noah to salvation. He called his wife and he called his sons and his son's wives. Were they married at the time that God declared this covenant with Noah? I don't know. His sons? Probably not. But God laid down the marker for the covenant. And he said, your son's wives, future tense, if that was the case, will also come with you. And let's look at verse 22. How did Noah respond? Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Let's look at chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. God chooses here in verse 1. And how does Noah respond in verse 5? And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. God's covenant has a few key aspects. We talked about this a little bit in earlier in Genesis with Adam. That God initiates the covenant, first of all, and it is a binding together of the relationship. Or you could say a confirmation of the relationship. So God initiates, God sets forth, man does not bring a covenant to God as if he could, as if he had that much authority. God initiates, God initiates, God created the world. God did it first, right? There was nothing and God created and then there was. Mankind did not exist as if mankind could create himself out of nothing. As if evolution actually held all the secrets of man and all the secrets and purposes of why we're here and, and, and why we exist and the end of all mankind. No, it does not. God does. God initiates. God declares. God chooses a relationship 
with man. And God chooses men for covenant. And this binding of the relationship, this is a confirmation of the relationship already in store, at least with Adam, at least with Noah. This covenant is this promise. It is more than vows. It is more than a contract. It is much more personal than those. This is a covenant. God is promising to man this, and God is asking for man's promise or man's confirmation or man's keeping of it back to God, and that seals the covenant. There is reward for obedience and following God. We see this in Noah's faith to build the ark. You're building a huge ship out in the desert or on dry land, wherever it is. Huge. Did this take him a year? Did this take him a decade? Did this take him 50 years or 75 years? This is a huge commitment. And it is a confirmation of his faith in God. We see this in Noah's faith to step into the ark. You don't step into the ark and bring all these animals into the ark unless you have faith that God is who he is and he's doing what he said he would do. And we're going to read next time about having faith when God himself closes the door into the ark. And salvation by being in the ark as the waters of death sweep through the earth. Noah had faith. Noah was trusting God at his word, at his command. And that's a key aspect of covenant. And also an aspect of covenant is the declared punishment for disobedience. God says it without specifically saying this is the punishment for disobedience. And that was the lot for the rest of the world. And what God was bringing, this flood was going to come. And if Noah did not obey, he would be looking at the same fate as the rest of the world. But God chose Noah. And Noah walked with God. So Noah was faithful to the covenant. And something else to remember about covenants, folks. God is always faithful to the covenant. If you have not been loved well in your life by different people in your life, or if you don't think that you are being loved well by someone in your life right now today, I will tell you, the love of God is absolutely different than that. It always has been and it always will be. God is always faithful to his covenant. God is always faithful to his people. God's love has no comparison. It is only through the life of Jesus that we see God's love on display on the earth as a confirmation of God's love in his word, of God's covenants in his word to his people. 
And it is only this type of love, this picture of love, this portion of love that we see that reflects God's glory when man, when men and women who love God, who embrace his word, who want to learn from God, who want to apply God's word to their lives, then we see the love of God displayed through us. We see this adoption into this mindset of love, that love is, oh, there's not supposed to be conditions on love. Yes, the world was teaching me that there's conditions on love. The world promulgates that you are supposed to have the best life for you, whatever that takes, whatever that means, however that is, you are supposed to be happy. You're supposed to be the ruler of your universe. In fact, you define your own truth. And that is a lie from the pit of hell because that is so destructive in your relationships. No. Man was made to be subjective to God Almighty, who sets the law, who sets the rules, who sets love, who sets covenant. And it is only when we adopt God's love that we effectively show anyone else on earth what love really looks like. An unconditional love, that there are no conditions to love. God loves with extravagance. There may be consequences for obeying him in covenant. There may be consequences for disobeying him in covenant. But I believe that God's love is absolute, that God loves and he 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 loves because God loves you. And I don't believe that God ever gives up on you. And I don't believe that God will ever do something not for your good. You may not always see the bigger picture. You may not always see what God is doing, but God is faithful and God is true. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. How would anyone not want to follow him in that? In conclusion, folks, the days in which Noah lived on the earth were very dark. Very dark. Lawlessness loomed heavy in the world. Violence became the norm. Corruption filled the hearts of men. And Noah stayed the course. Noah trusted God. Noah walked with God on the straight and narrow path that leads to life. He was firm in the storm. I think all of us can see the markers lining up in our nation, at least here in America. There are more and more officials abandoning our laws and going the way of lawlessness. There are people who embrace crime or maybe of a political ideology, whether they embrace crime or whether they call out crime. Culture embraces that which ought not be done. The media largely support lawlessness and denounce those who keep the law, who follow the law. Things are upside down. Our nation is getting darker. 
And I believe God's call to us is what he has always called to man. It's to stand firm in the storm. To not be swayed by this media story or that rumor or this gossip or that popular immoral trend of the moment. God is still God. The gospel is still true. Jesus will return. And he says, no man knows the day or the hour, only the Father. So be ready and waiting, expecting his return. And when he returns, Jesus will reign forever. Yes, he is reigning forever at the right hand of God the Father right now, but there will be a literal and a very direct reign when Jesus returns. Brothers and sisters, I ask you, do not lose sight of Jesus Christ, your Savior. For he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His name is faithful and true. And just like God carried Noah through the flood, Jesus' salvation, how much more so, Jesus' salvation for all of us. Let's pray. Lord Almighty, the one who sees and knows men's minds and men's hearts, you see the hints and the glimmers of corruption in us, your children. You see that we still struggle, we still struggle with sin, that we still struggle with temptation. And you know that we are trying to put our flesh to death. Those those humanistic, those selfish desires that well up in us to death because we love you. Holy Spirit, we ask, I ask, God, for your filling, for your power to fill up in us, to fill up in us that we might be about the things of God, that we might pursue you with an intensity because we know that you are a God of love. We know that you are a God of incredible love, faithful to your covenants, faithful to your people. You are great in forgiveness, immeasurable in compassion, wonderful and good. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, make us holy as you are holy. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, make us strong to stand firm in the storm of culture, to stand firm in our society, to stand firm in our countries and in our cities and in our rural areas because our eyes are fixed on you and not on this world. And lead us, God, in the way of the straight and narrow of the kingdom of God. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Join me next time as we continue in Genesis chapter 7.